Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The armies everywhere, in many houses. They burnt cars and destroyed them. They burnt houses. The armies present in every empty house. I left my home and they were still there. I was hardly able to pick clothes for my daughter. As the death toll in Gaza nears 19,000, the Israeli military is also carrying out deadly raids inside the occupied West Bank. We'll go to Janine to speak to the artistic director of the Freedom Theater, who was jailed this week after Israel rounded up hundreds of Palestinian men. Two of his colleagues remain in detention. He'll speak to us from the theater, which was trashed by Israeli forces. We'll also speak to Peter Schumann, the 89-year-old co-founder of Bread and Puppet Theater, about how his legendary truth is addressing Israel's assault on Gaza. What could be worse, a worse violation of our human rights than bombing hospitals and then send the murderers to investigate the crime? But first, we speak to the acclaimed writer Masha Gessen, who is scheduled to receive the prestigious Hannah Arendt Prize in Germany today. But the ceremony was postponed after a major German foundation withdrew its support for the award after Gessen compared life in Gaza to the Warsaw Ghetto. We'll also speak to Masha Gessen about being placed on Russia's most wanted list for comments they made about the war in Ukraine. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In the Gaza Strip, at least 33 people were killed when Israel's military struck a U.N. school in Khan Yunis, being used as a shelter of last resort for Palestinians expelled from their homes. Israeli raids also killed and wounded Palestinians at hospitals in Darabala, Khan Yunis, and in Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah, where more than a million displaced Palestinians are sheltering. Abu Mohammed Klab was one of those gathered at the morgue in Rafah's Abu Yusuf al-Najjar hospital Thursday. They'd come to collect the bodies of loved ones killed by Israeli strikes. They are looking at the images, but no one is saying anything. The dead are all children, women, and old people. They are not from the resistance. They are all civilians. You know the numbers of civilians, so why are you still silent? How long will you stay silent? Enough. Enough with this life. 
The death toll from Israel's assaults on Gaza and the West Bank since October is nearing 19,000. More than a third of those killed are children. An estimated 50,000 Palestinians have been injured. On Thursday, Israel once again cut phone and Internet service across most of Gaza, further hampering relief efforts. The World Food Program reports half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million people is starving, while nine out of 10 people are not eating enough and don't know where their next meal will come from. On Thursday, Philippe Lazzarini, the head of the UN's Agency for Palestinian Refugees, said it's become almost impossible to distribute the small amount of aid Israel is allowing into Gaza. People are stopping at aid trucks, taking the food and eating it right away. And this is how desperate and hungry they are. And I witness this firsthand. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed an unarmed 17-year-old boy inside the Khalil Suleiman Hospital. Medicine Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, also witnessed Israeli soldiers blocking medical workers and ambulances carrying discharged patients home. Drivers were forced to get out of their vehicles, strip down, kneel in the streets. MSF says it's part of a pattern targeting healthcare workers in the West Bank since October 7th, which also has included shooting live fire and tear gas at hospitals, blocking emergency vehicles, and humiliating and harassing medical staff. Outside the hospital compound, Israeli soldiers desecrated a mosque in Janine and read out Jewish prayers in the style of an Islamic call to prayer. This came as part of a three-day Israeli raid on the Janine refugee camp, the largest in 20 years, which killed at least 12 Palestinians. Israeli forces arrested over 100 others. President Joe Biden said Thursday Israel's military should be, quote, more careful to save Palestinian civilian lives. His comments came as U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet in Tel Aviv. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant told Sullivan Israel's campaign in Gaza will continue well into 2024. Uh, it will take and require a long period of time. It will last more than several months, but we will win and we will destroy them. According to the White House, Sullivan told Israeli leaders the U.S. expects Israel's military to soon switch to, quote, lower intensity operations. The White House did not give a timeline for the change, but The New York Times cites four unnamed U.S. officials who said Biden wants to grant Israel three weeks to switch to, quote, more precise tactics. Meanwhile, Al Jazeera has obtained an advanced copy of the United Nations report detailing the devastating impact of Israel's assault on Gaza. In it, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemns Israeli airstrikes on protected persons, including journalists, health workers and U.N. personnel, pleading with the Security Council to approve a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Guterres writes, quote, the magnitude of Israel's military campaign against Hamas and the scope of death and destruction in Gaza has been unprecedented and unbearable to witness, unquote. Jewish-led protests Thursday shut down bridges and highways across eight U.S. cities demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The peaceful actions in Seattle, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Portland, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Minneapolis, and Atlanta came on the eighth and final day of Hanukkah. In Portland, protesters blocked the Burnside Bridge as they held a homemade nine-foot menorah and sang Hanukkah songs and prayers. As Jews, we come from long legacies of resistance and resilience. 
Rededication is a theme of Hanukkah. So on this last night, we rededicate our lineage of resilience towards the struggle against genocide, against apartheid, against occupation. That protest in Oregon. On Capitol Hill, labor leaders joined progressive Congress members at a rally Thursday demanding President Biden support an immediate ceasefire and allow urgent humanitarian aid, food and water into Gaza. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain spoke alongside Congress members Cori Bush and Rashida Tlaib. The world's seen enough slaughter and devastation. Peace is the only path forward. While we call for a ceasefire, we also condemn anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-Arab racism, all of which are growing in our nation at this moment and must be stopped. Leaders of the Postal Workers Union and the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America are also calling for a ceasefire. Meanwhile, Biden administration staffers and other U.S. government employees are continuing to demand a permanent ceasefire. Dozens gathered for a vigil outside the White House Wednesday. Staffers concealed their identities with sunglasses and face masks as they read the names of some of the thousands of Palestinians killed in Gaza. The House of Representatives voted 310 to 118 to pass a record $886 billion military bill Thursday, one day after it won Senate approval. Its passage came despite concerns over its extension of Section 702 of FISA, that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which allows for warrantless surveillance of U.S. citizens. The Congressional Progressive Caucus encouraged its members to oppose the measure, though in the end just 45 Democrats voted against the largest ever National Defense Authorization Act. The ACLU said, quote, it's incredibly disheartening that Congress decided to extend an easily abused law with zero of the reforms needed to protect all of our privacy, they said. The bill also includes more military funding for Ukraine, a 5.2 percent raise for troops and a measure preventing the president from withdrawing from NATO without congressional approval. The U.N.'s World Food Program reports nearly 50 million people across Western and Central Africa are expected to go hungry next year, warning international funding for humanitarian aid is failing to keep pace with record levels of acute hunger. An analysis published by the WFP this week found more than two-thirds of households in the region cannot afford healthy diets due to a combination of conflict, climate change and soaring food prices. Alosib is the World Food Program's head of research for Western and Central Africa. Nearly 80 percent of the people currently facing food insecurity are located in conflict zones. We also witness the impacts of climate change. For instance, this year, there have been prolonged periods of halted rainfall in certain areas, resulting in significant crop losses for local farmers. The U.N. is warning hunger in Sudan's conflict zones is headed toward famine-like conditions, as some Khartoum residents have been surviving on a single small daily meal. Some 30 million people, roughly two-thirds of the population, are in need of assistance in Sudan, according to the U.N. That's double the number before fighting broke out in April between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces. The violence and economic woes have devastated Sudan's agricultural sector, which has also been hit by below 
below average rains. Meanwhile, residents of the city of Amdaman, which lies on the west bank of the Nile River, accused Sudanese soldiers of looting and shooting civilians in the Ambata district, the only area of the city still controlled by government forces. The RSF has also been accused of looting in areas under its control. A court in Senegal has ordered jailed opposition leader Usman Sanko to be reinstated on the electoral roll, paving the way for him to stand in next year's presidential election. Sanko, who's expected to be a key challenger of President Macky Sall, was sentenced in June to a two-year prison term over an alleged sexual assault charges he's accused the government of manufacturing to derail his candidacy. In late July, Senegalese officials dissolved Sanko's Patriots of Senegal party, the first time a political party has been banned in the West African nation since its independence from France in 1960. The European Union's agreed to open membership talks with Ukraine and Moldova. Leaders of 26 EU member states unanimously approved the accession talks Thursday after Hungary's far-right prime minister, Viktor Orban, left the room just before votes were cast. Orban, who is widely viewed as an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, had threatened to veto Ukraine's bid to join the EU. He appeared to back down after European leaders released more than $10 billion worth of aid to Hungary it had withheld after determining Orban's nationalist government was failing to uphold the rule of law. Meanwhile, Hungary's government blocked a European Union financial aid package for Ukraine worth $55 billion. Talks on that package will resume next year. And Brazilian lawmakers have approved a law making it harder for indigenous communities to make claims over ancestral territory. The law, which overrides a veto by President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, says such claims are not valid unless indigenous groups physically occupied the land when the 1988 Brazilian constitution was signed. Many indigenous communities were expelled from their lands over the course of decades, including during the military dictatorship. The measure comes in the wake of a September Supreme Court ruling, which rejected the 1988 timeline for indigenous territorial claims. The new law, backed by powerful agribusiness interests, threatens to open vast portions of indigenous territory to logging, mining, farming and ranching. Congressmember Celia Chacabria was among the minority lawmakers who voted against the legislation. The defeat is not only for us, the indigenous people. The defeat is for the climate agenda. We, the indigenous people, have been the number one solution to stop the climate crisis. And today, the Congress responded throwing the solution away. Celia Chakriaba was sitting next to Sonia Guajajara, the first indigenous minister of Brazil. We'll be bringing you an exclusive interview with her next week. Brazil's Supreme Court is expected to now review whether the new law is constitutional. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, the acclaimed writer Masha Gessen, who was scheduled to receive the prestigious Hannah Arendt Prize in Germany today, but the ceremony was postponed after a major German foundation withdrew its support for the award after Gessen compared life in Gaza to the Warsaw Ghetto. Stay with us.
بالشارع مش مادة مونتاج بالستوديو أجانب أنا بس حيوت مباشر مش متعلق بل أنا معلق بل أنا محلق Street Poetry by Dam This is Democracy Now! DemocracyNow.org The War and Peace Report I'm Amy Goodman We begin today's show with the acclaimed Russian-American writer Masha Gessen, scheduled to receive the prestigious Hannah Arendt Prize in Germany today. But the ceremony had to be postponed after one of the award sponsors, the left-leaning Heinrich Boll Foundation, withdrew its support for the prize after Masha Gessen compared Gaza to the Warsaw Ghetto in a recent article for The New Yorker titled In the Shadow of the Holocaust, How the Politics of Memory in Europe Obscures What We See in Israel and Gaza Today. The German city of Bremen also withdrew the venue where today's prize ceremony was scheduled to take place. In the essay, Masha Gessen wrote, quote, For the last 17 years, Gaza has been a hyper-densely populated, impoverished, walled-in compound where only a small fraction of the population had the right to leave for even a short amount of time, in other words, a ghetto. Not like the Jewish ghetto in Venice or an inner-city ghetto in America, but like a Jewish ghetto in an Eastern European country occupied by Nazi Germany. Masha Gessen went on to write about why the term ghetto is not commonly used to describe Gaza. They wrote, quote, presumably the more fitting term ghetto would have drawn fire for comparing the predicament of besieged Gazans to that of ghettoized Jews. It also would have given us the language to describe what's happening in Gaza now. The ghetto is being liquidated. Masha Gessen's essay sparked some outrage in Germany and its announcement withdrawing support for Gessen's prize. The Heinrich Boll Foundation, which is tied to the German Green Party, criticizes Gessen's essay, saying it, quote, implies that Israel aims to liquidate Gaza like a Nazi ghetto, unquote. While the foundation pulled out of the Hannah Arendt Prize ceremony, a smaller ceremony will take place Saturday at a different venue. For Gessen, the controversy in Germany comes just days after being added to Russia's most wanted list for comments they made about the war in Iraq, in, in Ukraine. Masha Gessen joins us now from Bremen, Germany. Masha Gessen is staff writer at The New Yorker, author of numerous books, including most recently Surviving Autocracy. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Masha, if you can start off by talking about this controversy, talking about what you wrote in The New Yorker magazine and the fact that, well, the ceremony hasn't been completely canceled, but just explain what's happened. Hi, Amy. It's good to be here. Um, I don't know that I can fully explain what happened because I don't think I quite understand what happened, um, because the Heinrich Bill Foundation— first withdrew from the prize ceremony, um, causing the city of Bremen to withdraw from the prize ceremony, causing the prize organizers to tell me that, first of all, they stand by me uh, and by their decision to give me the prize, but also to, uh, oh, and then the university where the discussion the day after the prize was supposed to be held also withdrew. Uh, and this is interesting because the university said that they believed that having the discussion would violate a law. Now, by the law, I think what they actually meant was the non-binding resolution uh, that bans uh, uh, anything connected with the boycott, uh, divestment, sanctions movement. 
which is non-binding but has a huge influence in Germany, um, and that was largely the topic of my of my article. So then the prize organizers uh, decided to have a smaller ceremony at a different location, which I'm not going to mention, not because I'm afraid of Germans, but because I'm concerned about Russians. Uh, and um, and then the Heinrich Böll Foundation, after quite an uproar in, in German social media and, uh, and conventional media, issued a new statement saying that they stand by the prize, but the venue had canceled, so they couldn't hold this award ceremony. So it was postponed. Uh, which I don't think was entirely um, forthcoming on the part of the Hanging Bill Foundation, and their first statement was on record. But that's where we stand now. So let's talk about the heart of what the Heinrich Bull Foundation has found so controversial. Talk about this piece that you wrote for The New Yorker magazine, the comparison you've made to Gaza and the Warsaw Ghetto. So the piece is fairly wide-ranging. It's it's a piece in which I traveled through Germany, Poland, and Ukraine and talk about the politics of memory in each country. But a large part of the piece uh, and, and how we view the current war in Israel-Palestine through the prism or fail to view the war through the prism of the Holocaust. Um, a large part of the article is devoted to, in fact, memory politics in Germany and the vast anti-anti-Semitism machine, which largely targets people who are critical of Israel and, in fact, are often Jewish. This happens to be a description that fits me as well. I am Jewish. I come from a family that includes Holocaust survivors. I grew up in the Soviet Union very much in the shadow of the Holocaust. Um, that's where the phrase and the headline came from is, is, is from the passage in, in, in the article itself. Uh, and I am critical of, of Israel. Now, the part that really offended the Henry Bill Foundation uh, and the city of Bremen, and I would imagine some German public, is the part that you read out loud, which is where I make the comparison between the... the besieged Gaza, so Gaza before October 7th, and a Jewish ghetto in Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, I made that comparison intentionally. It was not a, um, what they call here, a provocation. Uh, it was very much the point of the piece, because um, I think that the way that memory politics function now in Europe and in the United States, but particularly in Germany, is that their cornerstone is that you can't compare the Holocaust to anything. It is a singular event that stands outside of history. My argument is that in order to learn from history, we have to compare. Like, that actually has to be a constant exercise. We are not better people or smarter people or more educated people than the people who lived 90 years ago. The only thing that makes us different from those people is that in their imagination, the Holocaust didn't yet exist. And in ours, it does. We know that it's possible. And the way to prevent it is to be vigilant in the way that Hannah Arendt, in fact, and other Jewish thinkers who survived the Holocaust were vigilant and were, uh, there was an entire conversation, especially in the first two decades after World War II, in which they really talked about how to recognize 
the signs of sliding into the darkness. Um, and I think that we need to, oh, and one other thing that I, that I want to say is that our entire framework of international humanitarian law is essentially based, uh, it, it all comes out of the Holocaust, uh, as does the concept of genocide. And I argue that the, the that framework is based on the assumption that you're always looking at war, at conflict, at violence through the prism of the Holocaust. You always have to be asking the question of whether crimes against humanity, the definitions of which came out of the Holocaust, are occurring. And Israel has waged an incredibly successful campaign at setting its, uh, not only setting the Holocaust outside of history, but setting itself aside from the optics of international humanitarian law. Uh, in part by weaponizing the politics, uh, the politics of memory, the politics of the Holocaust. So talk more about that, that learning about the Holocaust through the idea that it is separate and apart and can be compared to nothing else versus how we ensure never again anywhere for anyone. I don't know that we can ensure it never again anywhere for anyone, but I think the only way to try to ensure it uh, is to keep knowing that the Holocaust is possible. Uh, keep knowing that it is it it, it it can come out of what Aaron called shallowness. Uh, I mean, this was very much her point in, uh, in, in Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And by the way, uh, this was a book that got Arendt really ostracized by um, both the Israeli political mainstream and much of the North American Jewish political mainstream. Four things that she wrote about the Judenrat, but also for this very framing of the banality of evil. Uh, it was misinterpreted as, as trivializing the Holocaust. But what she was saying is that the most horrible things of which humanity has proven capable can grow out of something that seems like nothing, can grow out of thoughtlessness, can grow out of the failure to see the fate of the other uh, or just or the inability to see it. Um, and I interpret that as a, as a call to constant vigilance for failure to see the fate of the other, for... Um, for doubting the uh, the kind of overwhelming consensus that certainly in Israel and in the North American Jewish community appears to back the, the, the Israeli onslaught on Gaza. This is the way in which we stumble into our darkest moments. For people uh, who don't know who Hannah Arendt is, uh, the Jewish philosopher, political theorist, the, or, uh, the author of The Origins of Totalitarianism and the Human Condition, The Banality of Evil as well, covered the Eichmann trial for The New Yorker magazine, the magazine that Masha Gessen writes for. Masha, last week, an Israeli airstrike in Gaza City killed the acclaimed Palestinian academic, the activist, the poet, Rafat al along with his brother, his sister, and his four nieces. For more than 16 years, al worked as a professor of English literature at the Islamic University of Gaza, 
where he taught Shakespeare and other subjects. The father of six, a mentor to so many young Palestinian writers and journalists. He co-founded the organization We're Not Numbers. In October, Democracy Now! spoke to Rafat Alarir, who also compared Gaza to the Warsaw Ghetto. If you have seen the pictures from Gaza, we speak about complete devastation and destruction to universities, to schools, to mosques, to businesses, to clinics, to roads, infrastructure, to water lines. Uh, if I googled this morning uh, Warsaw Ghetto pictures, and I got pictures I couldn't differentiate. Somebody tweeted four pictures and asked to, to tell which one is from Gaza and which one is from the Warsaw Ghetto. They are remarkably the same because the perpetrator is almost using the same strategies against uh, a minority, against uh, the oppressed uh, the people, the battered uh, people, the besieged uh, people, whether it was in uh, Warsaw Ghetto, the Jews in Warsaw Ghetto in the past, or Palestinian Muslims and Christians in, uh, in, the, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. So uh, the, the similarity is uncanny. That was the Palestinian poet, writer, and professor Rafat Aladir, who was killed in Gaza by an Israeli airstrike that killed his brother, sister, and four of her daughters. This is Scottish actor Brian Cox, famous for Succession, just nominated for uh, a number of Emmys, um, reading Rafat Aladir's poem, If I Must Die, in a video that's gone viral. If I must die... You must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings. Make it white with a long tail so that a child somewhere in Gaza while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite my kite you made flying up above and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love if i must die let it bring hope let it be a tale scottish actor brian cox reciting rafat alarir's poem if i must die in a video produced by the palestine festival of literature palfest uh, Masha Gessen, if you can comment on both what Rafat and you are saying about the Warsaw Ghetto and the significance of him dying in this strike. Like so many other Palestinians, I think the number as we speak, we're at something like 19,000 Palestinians dead, more than 7,000 children, more than 5,000 women, Masha. I, I wasn't aware that he had made this comparison, um, but I'm not particularly surprised because the comparison lies on the surface. And so the question I had to ask when writing this, it was why, uh, why hadn't this comparison been made before? The trope that's, that's been used for at least a dozen years in sort of human rights circles is open-air prison. An open-air prison is not a good descriptor for what was in what was Gaza before October 7th. It, there are no prison cells, there are no prison guards, there's no regimented schedule, uh, daily schedule. What there was was isolation, what there was was a wall, what there was was um, 
the inability of people to to leave, except, except with the exception of very, very few. What there was was a local force enabled in part by the people who built the wall, and I'm talking about Hamas now as the local force, that maintained order uh, and in this way serviced in part the needs of the people who built the, the, uh, the wall. Right? That, was, that was the bargain that Israel had struck by pulling out of Gaza, was that Hamas would maintain order there. And, um, and obviously there are huge differences. I'm not claiming by any means that this is a one-to-one comparison or that even there is such a thing as a one-to-one comparison, that's not a thing. Um, but I'm, what I'm arguing is that this different, the similarities are so substantial that they can actually inform our understanding of what's happening now. And what's happening now, and this is probably the line in the piece that made a lot of people throw their laptops across the room, uh, what's happening now is that the ghetto is being liquidated. And I think that's an important thing to say, not just because it's important to call things, to describe things in the best possible way that we can, um, but because, again, in the name of never again, we have to ask if this is like a ghetto and if what we're witnessing now in this indiscriminate killing, in this in, in, in an onslaught that has displaced almost all the people of Gaza and that has made them homeless, if that is substantially similar to what we saw in some places during the Holocaust, then what is the world going to do about it? What is the world going to do in the name of never again? Masha Gessen, the cancellations of speeches, of festivals um, that are seen as pro-Palestinian are on the rise. Um, You have taught at Bard for years. You know the kind of pressure that professors and students are being brought under all over uh, the United States. You're in Germany right now. I'm wondering if you can comment on this. Some are calling it a new McCarthyism. And yet, interestingly, like you, so many of the protesters are Jews, are Jewish students, Jewish professors. But when your—this ceremony was first— canceled and postponed. What kind of response did you get from the press? Was it an avalanche of interest? And especially in Germany now, where people like Greta Thunberg, right, the young climate activist, spoke up for Gaza and got pilloried in the German press. Well, it's funny you should ask, because I was uh, making my way to Bremen uh, after having woken up to an email telling me that, uh, that this was all going on. And I started seeing media reports that were wildly inaccurate. They said, for example, that that the price had been rescinded, which it never was. The jury uh, was very firm, and I uh, and I can't say enough to express my appreciation for them. I can, uh, I think they've shielded me from uh, how much pressure they've come under uh, as a result of this controversy. But I felt so. Are well hosted and, and supported by them, but but yeah, the media were uh, reporting all sorts of things and also making up biographical uh, facts about me. And in all that time, not a single German reporter contacted me, and only one U.S. reporter contacted me, uh, the, the, a reporter from the Washington Post. So I tweeted about it, and it was like I reminded journalists that that's what we do: is we call people and find out what actually happened. 
So I have been talking to the media now nonstop for the last uh, 28 hours. Uh, I'm, I almost wish I hadn't tweeted, but I also think it's very important to try to um, to try to have this conversation in a meaningful way. So I've been concentrating mostly on German media. Uh, every single German media outlet I've ever heard of has reached out to me. So I don't think it's that they, did, they didn't want to give me a voice. It's that um, the habit of aggregating the news has just become so ingrained that people forget that, um, that the substance of our profession is to actually call people and ask them. Go to where the silence is. Uh, Masha Gessen, I also want to ask you about another issue. Russian police recently placed you on a wanted list after opening a criminal case against you on charges of spreading false information about the Russian army. The Kremlin's accusing you of spreading uh, false information over your remarks about the massacre of Ukrainian civilians by Russian forces in the city of Bucha in March of last year. Can you comment? Um, well, it's been quite a week. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I kind of feel like I want to stop making news. But, um, but you know what? I, it's not crazy to me that uh, I'm both placed by on the Russian wanted list and uh, running into trouble with German authorities, because. I think that there's there's a kind of politics, and that's and this is what you referred to in uh, in the first part of your earlier question, which is you know the thing that some people are referring to as the new McCarthyism. This is to me the most worrying part of uh, of domestic Western politics, uh, both here and in the United States, that the right wing is riding the horse of anti anti Semitism. In Germany, the IFD, which is the far-right uh, anti-immigrant party, has been using uh, anti-Semitism as a cudgel, to, um, uh, both as a ticket into the political mainstream and as a cudgel against uh, a lot of uh, anti-Israeli anti policy voices, many of which belong to Jews. And um, and I think that the uh, what we're what we have observed with the university presidents being called into Congress in uh, in the United States is has has definite similarities. It is also uh, Elise Stepanek's ticket into the uh, into the political limelight and political mainstream. But it also and this is the really important part. It is also based on a profoundly anti-Semitic world view. Um, Elise Stefanik is using uh, these university presidents to uh, to attack liberal institutions, to attack Ivy League universities, and I think in her imagination, and we I think we know enough to know that this is how her, her imagination is working. She is trying to get uh, donors to withdraw funding to undermine these institutions, and of course, in her imagination, the Jews control all the money, so the donors are Jews. This is the most sort of basic anti-Semitic trope. And, um, and the fact that uh, the, the right is able to hijack the issue of anti-Semitism so effectively is truly dangerous because you know what? Anti-Semitism is real. Anti-Semitism, uh, when, when uh, right-wing politicians or stupid politicians Mix actual anti-Semitism with fake anti-Semitism, with what in Germany they called Israel-related anti-Semitism, 
which is basically criticism of Israel. Um, what we end up with is a muddled picture in which Jews are being used, an anti-Semitic worldview is being reaffirmed, and ultimately actual real anti-Semitism becomes a bigger danger. And I wanted to end with another victim of the Holocaust, the LGBTQ community. Russia's Supreme Court recently banned LGBTQ plus activism in a landmark decision. Amnesty International blasted as shameful and absurd. The ruling, which asserts the international LGBTQ movement is extremist, threatens to further endanger already persecuted communities. Masha, isn't that part of the reason you left the Soviet Union, you left Russia to begin with? We just have a minute, but if you could comment. Yes, I left. I'm, uh, next week is 10 years since I was forced to leave Russia because uh, of the anti-gay campaign that was already underway in, um, in Russia, and the Kremlin was threatening to go after my family. Well, Masha Gessen, we thank you so much for joining us, staff writer at The New Yorker magazine, uh, distinguished writer in residence at Bard, award-winning Russian-American journalist, author of numerous books, including most recently Surviving Autocracy. Masha's most recent piece for The New Yorker is headlined In the Shadow of the Holocaust, How the Politics of Memory in Europe Obscures What We See in Israel and Gaza Today. We'll link to it at Democracy. Now.org. Masha Gessen has been speaking to us from Bremen, Germany, where they will be receiving um, the Hannah Arendt Award, albeit at a different venue, not sponsored by as many organizations that originally were sponsoring that award. When we come back, we go to Janine, to the Occupied West Bank, to speak with the artistic director at the Freedom Theater, jailed this week after Israel rounded up hundreds of Palestinian men and trashed the theater. And we'll speak to Peter Schumann, the 89-year-old co-founder of Bread and Puppet Theater, about his legendary troupe addressing Israel's assault on Gaza, the performances this weekend here in New York. Back in 20 seconds. Life flows on in endless song Above Earth's lamentation I hear the real though far off him that hails a new creation Through all the tumult and the strife I hear that music ringing It sounds an echo in my How Can soul. I Keep From Singing by Pete Seeger. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to the occupied West Bank, where Israel's killed at least 12 Palestinians during a three-day raid on the Janine refugee camp, the largest raid there in 20 years. On Wednesday, Israeli soldiers raided the Freedom Theater in Janine, a renowned cultural institution whose mission is to fight for Palestinian justice, equality, and self-determination. The theater's been repeatedly targeted by Israeli forces since its founding in 2006. In 2011, one of the theater's founders, Giuliano Mercamis, was assassinated. In July, the theater was struck in an Israeli drone strike. We're joined now by Ahmed Tabassi, the theater's artistic director, who is detained and beaten this week. Two of his colleagues remain detained, including the theater's general manager, Mustafa Sheta. 
Ahmed, thank you so much for being with us. Describe where you are sitting right now and then what happened to you this week. We're seeing a raid um, that is one of the largest that Israel, I mean, frequently raids Janine. One of the times it raided Janine, um, it killed the Al Jazeera um, reporter. Um, but Ahmed, if you can talk about what's happened now. Uh, it just, uh, uh, there is no words, actually. I, I could not find a words to describe the pain, uh, uh, the sword that we have uh, uh, as a Palestinian and especially the people in Jenin and Jenin camp. I'm sitting in the middle of my office uh, and Mustafa's office. And for me, it's just like um, uh, everything is destroyed. Uh, 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 and you see all this mess. And I don't know why. It's because this is theater. It's not a military base. It's not a terrorist house. It's not a, a, an armed uh, 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 place or there is no guns. There is books, pictures, cameras, uh, uh, music uh, uh, instruments. All of it being destroyed. The whole theater being uh, like all computers, all offices being destroyed and they've been rotting uh, and writing and drawing uh, Hebrew things uh, uh, all uh, around. Uh, and, you know, it just uh, yesterday, before yesterday, I was actually in my house, which is in front of the Freedom Theater. And uh, I know I was waiting. They're going to come to check us in the house because they're going house to house. They're arresting everyone from like 13 to uh, uh, 60, 50 years old. Uh, and they, I was hearing them. They're coming to my house because they're going house by house. And then they just. Uh, broke the door of my house and just uh, went out to them and told them, please, uh, 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 there is children here. We are a whole family here and we can do whatever you want. There is no need for violence. There is no need to do anything. But uh, uh, quickly they uh, put the guns on me. They took me, put me down and they start to beat me. Uh, and I don't know why I was telling them like I have a Norwegian passport. I'm a Norwegian citizenship, but they didn't care. They stormed in. Uh, they broke all the house, they broke everything, any electronic stuff, uh, any glass, uh, and they took my brother too. The children were screaming, crying, and even they were uh, screaming on them. And because I, 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 I understand a little Hebrew, they were swearing at the children, they were uh, screaming at my mom and dad, which was old people. And then they start to beat me, and then they handcuffed me, and they took me, and they put some even like army clothes in me, and they start to take pictures of me taking poses soldier by soldier to show their uh, uh, girlfriends they are heroes. But while I was under arrest, under the guns, and they were taking these pictures for me, uh, and then they put me in a truck, they took me to a general checkpoint, and they throw me uh, in the mud. It was raining. Uh, they throw me beside the street where all the jeeps, the, the vehicles army go, go around me. And we, I don't understand what is going on. Are they going to drive on me? Are they going to kill me? What, I, don't, I don't know what is going on because I was blindfolded. And then they put me in another truck and they took me to other place where they throw us again outside, start to do like an immediate interrogation about my identity uh, and they, like, you know, intelligence, but it's outside intelligence in the rain. They, 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 they didn't let me even take my shoes or uh, clothes to cover myself. It's December, it's very cold with the rain, and it was uh, a torture in somehow, a psychologically torture, mentally torture, that 
all, all, all the time, the soldiers go around you, the guns, their guns touching you, and you just waiting the moment when they're going to shoot you, are they going to drive on you, are they going to smash you? And, you know, they take you from place to place, place to place, makes you walk that you don't know without shoes with the mud. So it was a, a whole crazy, uh, uh, I, I, cannot, I cannot describe this is happening for me, it takes me directly to 2002 when I was 17 years old. It's exactly the same thing happening. The Israelis have the machine time to bring you back 20 years just with one button, with one invasion. And for me, I am wondering how long this is going to happen again and again in the same way. And still the whole world looking and they cannot do anything. For us, we as a Palestinian, we are too bored of this of this life. We are too bored of this legacy of the world that they're promising humanity, promising uh, 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 democracy, this is this is I cannot go on again. The, the, I mean, we as Palestinians now we arrived to the point that we cannot wait for another promise. We have to do something even as a Palestinians. But even though we still in the Freedom Theater is a cultural, artistic place where 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 we have children, uh, young people, uh, uh, girls, boys, women to come here to practice to to find a place where they can express themselves, where they can imagine there is there is a better life, a better place in this world, where they can decide uh, 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 their future in different ways, to choose to be different uh, from the reality that we're living in. Still, the Israelis come and they're telling us, no, you cannot dream, you cannot uh, uh, think that you can be something different from the reality around you. You are under occupation, and that's your destiny as a Palestinian to grow up, to be born, grow up and die under brutal, crazy, violent occupation that they don't believe in anything, not in art. Uh, 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 they arrest us as, as artists, as the people who do theater. They arrest, uh, uh, they destroy everything that shows there is a, a culture, there is art that we Palestinians, as a, 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 we are a normal people. The Israeli soldiers believe we are not a human being, being. That's why they're killing us in very easy way. That's why they destroy, destroy theaters and cultural places because also they believe no one in this world can ask them to stop. No one ask, no one can tell them you can't do this. They believe as an Israelis, they can do whatever they want and no one in this world can tell them what you are doing. So I'm asking all the artists in this world, and you know, as Giuliano Merhamis and Zakaria Zubedi, the main founders of the Freedom Theater, was believing the third intifada, which we're doing now, it's going to be a cultural, artistic intifada. We're asking also all the friends all around the world, you have to unite and we have to fight not just for Palestinians. We have to fight for this planet, for the humanity, for each com community and each country still under colonization or under incubation. This planet is very important that we can, we're going to live together in this planet without all this hate, without all this violence, that the only country creating this and make all this world unstable, it's Israel. 
I wanted to play the words of Giuliano Merhamis, again, the co-founder of the Janine Freedom Theater. Um, he was killed in 2011 in Janine, shot by masked assailants. So we talked to him when he was in the United States. He talked about the theater's mission that you are sitting in right now, the theater that is once again ransacked. This is Giuliano. My name is Giuliano and I am the director of the Freedom Theatre in Janine Refugee Camp. The Freedom Theatre is a venue to join the Palestinian people in their struggle for liberation. We believe that uh, the third intifada, the coming intifada, should be cultural, with poetry, music, theater, cameras, and magazines. This place never had a theater. This place never was exposed to these arts. So actually, we are building everything from scratch. We are building capacity building of actors. We are building capacity people of audience. You know, sometimes it's easier to create actors than audience. We are dealing with the young generation to expose them to this art. The location of the Freedom Theatre, and don't let this view to deceive you, we are sitting in the mid of the most attacked and poor refugee camp in Palestine, the refugee camp of Jenin. We are talking about almost 3,000 children under the age of 15 suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. It means they pee in their pants when they are 11. It means they cannot concentrate, they cannot uh, deal with each other with without violence. That was a promotional video uh, that Giuliano Merhamis did for the Janine Freedom Theater, talking about the theater's mission. Um, and we're right now in the Janine uh, Theater, in the Freedom Theater, um, uh, with uh, the um, <clears throat> one of the people who Ahmed Tabassi, who is now the artistic director, um, Giuliano was killed, assassinated in 2011. So, Ahmed Tabassi, you were held for 24 hours. The managing, general manager of the theater, Mustafa Sheta, uh, is still being held. Do you know what's happening to him? And the other scores of men who have been taken at this point, Israel saying they are Hamas. Uh, you know, uh, for, in a way that uh, the Freedom Theater, as you said and as you mentioned, being attacked all the time that Jenin camp being attacked. It's like we are part of this place and the Israelis have no differences uh, to look at the uh, uh, organization like Freedom Theater as an artistic cultural organization, which should be saved as an international organization. Yes, at the same time, Mustafa Shita also was taken. At the same time, I was taken. Uh, and I think he he been uh, uh, taken to other place, which is clearly that they're going to help him. Uh, uh, we still do not have any information about, about him. Uh, soon after this program, I will go to his family to see uh, if they got any, any news about him. But for sure, there is many friends around the world trying to push, uh, uh, to get some information or at least to push to release him. Another student also was also arrested yesterday. You know, even our kids uh, after the Ju uh, July invasion being killed uh, in front of the theater, we have now three people, three, three young people being killed uh, from the uh, children of the Freedom Theater. And uh, uh, still, like 15 years now, 20 years we're working 
building this place in the last July being destroyed. We, we, we rebuild it again. We fix it again. But now after two or three months again, they come and destroy everything. They even stole the computers. It's crazy. This army have no morals. They steal computers. They are not, not a soldier. They are just a thieves. But yeah, it's, it's crazy that uh, uh, we talked to a lawyer that he's going to start looking for information and see what the situation of Mustafa. But for sure, Israelis do not give information that easy. Uh, and because he's still not uh, in, a, in, a, in a, like a clear prison, he's still maybe under interrogation. And that's what we are worrying about because also the head of the board of the Freedom Theater been already one year uh, arrested before one year and there is no any clear evidence about what is the accused about him. So you see as, as an uh, 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 artistic field, as an artist in Palestine, uh, that's the way that we live our life. That's the way we do our theater, our, our, our work in, in art. We are not looked as a, a different way, but that's our mission. That's my mission to keep the Freedom Theater open, to save uh, Giuliano's legacy and keep fighting for the same uh, 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 things that we believe. Uh and we know that in Palestine, to be an artist, that's also a chance that you're going to be arrested or killed even. I wanted to end today's show, uh, if you will stay with us, um, Ahmed, with uh, another theater director, uh, Peter Schumann, the 89-year-old co-founder of the legendary Bread and Puppet Theater. It's here in New York at the Theater for a New City um, w with a show that is an ode to Gaza. I went to it last night. Um, Peter, we only have a minute, then we're going to continue the conversation after um, with Ahmed. But if you can, if you want to share your thoughts with Ahmed right now about what you're doing as he called for solidarity with his theater. Oh, my God, Amy, just to listen to this report of Ahmed and this company. Oh, my God, them crying all the way through it in fury and in solidarity. It's unbearable, unbearable. And to think that this stupid organization called the Freedom and Democracy or some bullshit like that. that it you can't exist. curse, Peter. You cannot curse on I, the okay, air. Okay, no more, no more cursing. Okay, no. I think that's so wonderful, right? Unbelievable that this is a, 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 a Congress of cowards, a, a president of, <laughs> seems to be an idiot, so that's a curse. It's unbelievable what this country is supporting. I don't get it because it isn't just Israel at all. Well, let it's me the ask. Weapons and the, let me ask in the last yeah. 30 seconds, Ahmed Tabassi, about the U.S. position. And if you have a message, Ahmed, for President Biden. Uh, I'm sorry for, for, for the Americans that the Israel, all, all this support, all taxpayers goes to Israel to kill uh, 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 children and kill women. For me, this money should go to create art, to create culture, to support artists, to build theaters, to build artistic and cultural organization all over the world, to, to save artists in China and Russia, even in U.S. I want this money not goes to create weapons. Americans, you are getting your picture in a way, not in a right way, because all this military support and all this military 
a crazy support goes to change your pictures as a human. I believe our friends in America, we have the friends of the Freedom Theater in New York. We, they are Jewish and they are supporting us. We, Ahmed, we have to leave it there. The text. Ahmed Tabassi, Artistic Director of Freedom Theater, just released by Israel and Peter Schumann. Thank you.